Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are you, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. The sun, the sun coming up. The moon coming up, Mountain Dew in a Fifth Avenue bar every day at 3 o'clock, and the Vikings disappointing you. What do those four things have in common? Always happen. Those things are a constant in our lives. We bank on the sun coming up in the morning. We bank on the moon coming up at night. I'm sure you bank on that 3 o'clock break for a Mountain Dew and a Fifth Avenue bar. And we all know we can bank on the Vikings disappointing us. Those things are just constants in our lives. They're constant every year, every day. Well, there's been one thing that's been a constant for the world. That one thing that's been a constant for the world is war. War is a constant of history. Even since civilization has progressed and democracy has stretched, war has continued. In the recorded 3,421 years of history, there have only been 268 without war. 3,400 years of history and only 260 without war. That means that 92% of human existence, the time that humanity has been recorded to be here, there has been war. You could say that we are in a perpetual state of fighting, anger, hurt, frustration, grief, and all that other stuff that comes with war. Fighting is a constant, but not just with nation versus nation, but rather fighting is also a constant in our personal lives. We also find ourselves in a constant state or a perpetual state of relational struggle, whether at work or home, church, neighborhood, or wherever we're at, we know that we experience relational conflicts. We know 
that we can live in a perpetual state of anger or jealousy or grief that can flow from relational conflict. You could, see, could say that one of our characteristics is relational conflict. Yet, one of the characteristics of God's kingdom or one of the characteristics of Jesus himself, it was recorded here in Matthew chapter 5, is that God's people are peacemakers. Jesus is making a list of declarations here, different blessings saying, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, these are characteristics of the kingdom of God, and God's blessings are found in these characteristics. One of these characteristics is peacemaking, something that can be so foreign to you and I as our lives are engulfed with anger and jealousy, when our lives are engulfed in a perpetual state of relational conflict. Well, this morning, I'm sure that you did not wake up and said to yourself, I hope I'm cursed today. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I hope today is full of curses. If you're lying right now and not raising your hand, you need to make an appointment with me sometime in the next week. I don't know anyone that walks around during the day and say, I want to be cursed today. Actually, we all walk around, we all live and say what? I want to be blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed? Who doesn't want to live in a state of divine favor? where you're in a position of joyous expression. That's where we want to be. I want to be in that state of happiness. And Jesus is saying, hey, a state of happiness exists for peacemakers, for people who pursue peace. Well, what is peace? We think oftentimes, well, peace, that's easy. No war. Peace is more than the absence of war. Peace goes back to the word shalom in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard the word shalom. It's used a lot in the Middle East. Even sometimes in our own culture, the word shalom is used. The word shalom means peace, but more than that, it means wholeness. That everything is in its right position. Everything is operating the way it's supposed to operate. That's why sometimes when there's a religious war, you'll hear the phrase that they're trying to bring about shalom. But what they mean is they're trying to put everything the way it's supposed to be. You and I are pursuing shalom. We want peace. And Jesus is saying here, hey, hey, people who are in a state of blessing, those who are in a state of happiness are those who are pursuing peace. Not just the absence of war, but that everything is operating the way it's supposed to. You can be at work and not having a fist fight with your coworker. But that doesn't mean there's shalom at work. That doesn't mean you have peace in your workplace. That doesn't mean you're working together as the perfect team. That doesn't mean that you're complimenting your coworker and making them the best employee that they can be. You can be at home, and you might not be fighting with your spouse every night, but that doesn't mean there's shalom. Are you working together to raise your kids? Are you growing in knowledge? Peace. Everything's working the way it's supposed to be. And God is saying to us here in Matthew chapter 5 that there's a state of blessing 
There's a position of joy, uh, an existence of happiness for those who what? Are pursuing peace. Those who are peacemakers. I think it's relevant for all of our lives that we need to understand this thing, peace, and how to pursue it. The questions that came in a couple of weeks ago that led me to pick peacemakers here out of the list in the Beatitudes, a couple of those questions were the following. I have struggles with my siblings, feelings of jealousy. They push me away from relationships or I keep a wall up. How can I change that? When one is hurt by Christian friends, even after forgiving and accepting forgiveness, it still hurts. This is very frustrating. How do we get family to get along and talk with each other? I struggle with dealing with anger towards others or apathy. If someone hurts you, how should you repay them? I think all of us could write a similar question or make a similar statement about our own lives. So how is it then that we can pursue peace? The problem that we have is that we fall into a dangerous or an unhealthy cycle or pattern. We actually don't fall into the unhealthy cycle. We just walk right into it. Actually, we run right into it because it's all we know. The unhealthy cycle goes something like this. Someone wrongs us or we've got a little relational conflict. Here's the first thing that usually happens. I passively withdraw from that person. I intentionally slowly remove myself from the presence of that person. And this is critical. Most of the time it's passive, not aggressive. Because why? Most of us want to be what? Minnesota nice. So we feel like doing it passively rather than aggressively, we're actually doing it right. So we passively withdraw from the person. We might answer a phone call once, but then we start only answering every other phone call. We might say hi to the coworker once, but then we slowly start to avoid that coworker. We slowly pull ourselves away from that person and that situation. So that's the first step is we passively withdraw. And then after we passively withdraw, we start to do something really dangerous. Because we're not interacting with the person, we begin to mind read the person. I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? We're not interacting with them at all, but I still know exactly what they're thinking. So when I see that person and they look at me, I know that they're thinking, oh, that jerk right over there, that so-and-so, why, why do they keep looking at me? Why did they do this or that? I just project, that's what I'm thinking, so what do I do? I project that onto them, that that's what they're thinking. When I see their number on caller ID, what do I do? Oh, why do they want to call and talk about this right now? How dare they begin to think of using that kind of language with me? They haven't even spoken yet. But what have we done? We've read their minds, even though we've passively withdrawn from them. And then after we read their minds, what we begin to do in our own minds is we begin to exaggerate the problem. We begin to make a mountain out of a molehill. So for example, your coworker gives you a dirty look for being three minutes late. So you come at 8.03, your coworker kind of gives you that dirty look. The next day you say to yourself, oh, my coworker is always giving me a dirty look. Even though your coworker only gave you a dirty look once. The other two times, they were upset that the wind was just blowing in through the door. 
What have you done? You've taken a small situation and you've exaggerated it. You and your spouse have a little bit of conflict. Your spouse says a couple of words to you. The next night you come home and you say, I'm going to avoid my spouse because my spouse always yells at me. And it only was the one time before. But now that I've said always, what have I done? I've elevated it. We do this all of the time. We exaggerate stuff. We make it bigger than it actually is. And then after we exaggerate, what do we do? Well, it's become so big in my mind, I've got to tell someone else. So then at lunch, I'm saying, oh my goodness, can you believe Franklin at work has always given me that look? And then what are my coworkers saying to me? Yeah, what a jerk. I'm sorry to hear that. So now my coworkers are what? Affirming the way that I'm feeling. My coworkers are what? Affirming the way that I'm handling the situation. So what? Now I've got confidence that I'm in the right pattern. I passively withdraw. I begin to mind read what they're thinking or what they're going on in their minds. I exaggerate the problem. I tell others. So now I've got a chorus of support around me. That all leads to the final thing that then just remains throughout everything. And we've all experienced it. Gut rot. All of that puts us in a position of what? A constant state of inner turmoil. Here or here or right around here. And then I'm just in that state all of the time, reworking the steps continually. This is what we do. This is what the world does when there's conflict. This happens all of the time. Then this angst does what? It just eats away at us. It starts to affect the way I interact with others. It affects the amount of sleep I get, which then affects how productive I am. You see, it begins to affect everything because I entered into an unhealthy pattern. Well, what would it look like to do a whole different way to handle relational conflict a completely different way? I believe that Jesus has got a completely different pattern for us here on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Then if you look on in Matthew chapter 5, he goes now to talk about some peace initiatives. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He now says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar first and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So Jesus is laying out here, basically helping us understand the Ten Commandments a little bit, this issue of murder, anger, and so forth. But he lays out a completely different pattern, way of handling it. You can summarize it in one word. Go. Go to the person. He's saying, Jesus basically, no, go to the accuser. He even goes to these depths and says this, if you're at worship, leave and go take care of that business first. That's what he means when he says here, if you're bringing a gift to the altar or the offering that they were bringing to the temple. No, no, no. Don't bring that offering to the temple. That offering is not acceptable in the sight of God. 
It's actually a disgrace to God to bring an offering to God and think that you can buy God off while you're living in the midst of relational conflict and you have not extended forgiveness. It says in 1 John chapter 4, how can you say the love of God is within you when you hate your brother or your sister? Don't you think we've got a big enough God that knows exactly what's going on? When relational conflict comes, Jesus just says, simply says, go, go. Remember that word, go. Now look on here in Matthew chapter 5, go down to verse 38. He continues this issue of dealing with anger and, and troublesome. Now he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, situation that's happened to all of us. Someone wrongs us. Someone hurts us. The way of the world, as Jesus says here, is what? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Then notice the big but right here. Jesus says, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, whoa, there's a whole different way of handling this. And the whole different way of handling this is what? Same word. Go. Someone forces you to walk a mile with them, what does he say? Walk two miles with them. In other words, go to that person. Go to them. Stay with them. Go and stay. So go and stay. We see here now, let's read on a little bit. He continues to talk here about how to handle enemies and so forth. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, again, talking about something all of us face. How do you treat your enemies? How do you treat those who persecute you or don't like you? How do you treat those who you don't like? Jesus says, hey, the way of the world is this. They treat me that way. I can treat them that way in return. And it makes logical sense. Jesus says, hold on here. There's a whole different way. That's the way of the world, but you're not of the world. You're a Jesus person, remember? You claim this guy named Jesus. This guy named Jesus has got a whole different way to him. This different way is what? Go and greet your enemy. Let me point you out what I'm saying here. Verse 47. Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Jesus is saying, yeah, the tax collectors even greet each other. And if you only greet the people that you like, if you only walk on the same side of the street of people that you know you're going to like and you see, how are you any better than the people on the other side of the street? In other words, Jesus is saying this intentionally go to those people. You know that the person that you're having a trouble with grocery shops at 9 o'clock at Hy-Vee on Friday nights, you know when you need to be at Hy-Vee? 9 o'clock Friday nights. The way of the world is this, grocery shop anytime except Friday night at 9 o'clock. But Jesus is different than that. The people of Jesus are different than that. 
Jesus is not just laying out some high religious ideas here. Jesus is not saying, hey, this is the way Jesus is, and I know you can't be this way, so feel really guilty because you're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. And now I forgive you. Go on your way and do your stuff. No, Jesus has given us what? Teaching on how to be his people, on how to live out his kingdom and express his reign here on earth. Jesus has given us a whole different pattern here of how to handle relational conflict. So instead of the unhealthy pattern, I just want to propose a different process that comes from this teaching of Jesus. That different process begins with something we say a lot and we give a lot of lip service, but I would contend we hardly do at all. Pray for the other person directly. Now there's a big difference between praying, God, help me get along with Franklin today at work so I can get out of there. Then praying, God, today I pray that you would give Franklin a raise. God, today I pray that Franklin would experience your kindness. You're praying for Franklin that has nothing to do with you at all. You're just simply praying God's blessings for Franklin. This is what we need to do. Put ourselves in a position that begins to think like God even when we don't feel it. You don't, want, you don't feel like praying for a raise for Franklin. You want Franklin fired. It doesn't matter how you feel. We have to do what God's Word says. Pray for him. Pray for him directly. This is the first step. Make a habit. Make a list. And I know we can all make a list right now, Right? You're making one right now in your minds, and I'm on some of your lists probably, right? It's time for you to start praying. Who's on that list? Pray directly for them. The second is this. Intentionally interact with that person. Intentionally interact with that person. Now, there's a big difference between interaction and a sit-down Bible study together. I'm not saying a sit-down Bible study together. I'm saying intentional interaction. Talk to the person. When you see the coworker at work, you need to go up. How are you doing today? Did you do anything exciting this last weekend? What do you have going on this week at work? What projects are you working on? You need to intentionally interact with them. This is one major step that moves us forward that's vastly different than the way of the world. And this helps you what? Overcome all of the negative thoughts you have about them, all of the assumptions you have about them. Not only that, this puts you in a position of treating them as one who's been created in the image of God. Do you think God wants us trampling on his creation by ignoring them? We need to intentionally interact with them. Intentionally do it. Call them. You're struggling with a family member right now? Call them. Just say, hey, how's it going? You're not calling them to say, hey, we need to talk right now about this stuff. No, no, just call them. Hey, how's it going? Just checking in. Is there anything I can pray for your family this next week? That's it. You don't have to read them the book of Leviticus. You don't have to give them the gospel message. You don't have to, that's it. I guarantee you, if you call them and say, hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, just wonder if anything I pray for you for this next week. That's all you did. I, I bet you my car, okay? I guarantee, I'll give you my car. If you come back next week and the person that you did that for came and attacked you after you did it. It won't happen. We need to initiate interaction. That's the first thing. After we've initiated some interaction, 
not the first time, not all in one shot. After we've initiated interaction, I need to offer a specific apology for my role in whatever happened. Offer a specific apology for my role in whatever happened. I'm sorry for the way I responded after we had that disagreement. I've said nothing about who started the disagreement, if I thought they did. I've said nothing about their behavior. All I've said is I'm sorry for a very specific thing. It cannot be general. You cannot say, hey, I'm sorry. Let's just get along. And then the other person says, okay, I'm good if you're good. Let's go. Okay, general forgiveness does not bring back, bring along genuine restoration. General forgiveness does not bring about genuine restoration. Because both of you are what? Both of you are still carrying around underneath the surface what happened. Offer a specific apology and leave it at that. You can't force them to apologize. You can't force them how they're going to respond. All you can do is offer a specific apology. Again, more interaction. You need the next step is this. State your desire for your desired outcome. State your desire. State your desired outcome. What do you want to happen? So, for example, if you're with your coworker, you just need to say to your coworker, hey, Franklin, I hope at some point that you and I can become good partners here at uh, Widgets R Us, and together we can make the best widgets possible. If your ultimate outcome is that you're just really good workers together, making each other better, you need to just say that that's what you want to happen. If you're with a family member, you just need to say to your family member, hey, family member X, crazy uncle, I want to get to the point where we can play horseshoes again at Thanksgiving. At Fourth of July, you don't play that at Thanksgiving. Thing. Uncle X, I want to get to the point again where we can come to each other's homes for the holidays. I'm just stating very specifically what my desired outcome is. Again, I've got no control how they respond. I'm not putting any expectations on them. I'm just stating the desired outcome. That's all I can do. Do you see the vastly different two processes that we can fall into? This cycle over here of passively withdraw and embellish and mind read and gossip or this process over here of pray, interact, apologize, state a desired outcome. Guess what you're doing over here? You're doing what you can control. You've done your part. You can't control their response. You can't control what they're going to do. But you can control what you're going to do. And Jesus here from the Sermon on the Mount would have us do things vastly different. Finally, how is this process different than this? This process needs to be done in person. We need to get beyond the emails, the text messages, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever you want to call it, the phone. Folks, when it gets to the level where it's causing you problems, you need to interact with the person face-to-face, person-to-person. You can get an email from someone and you're reading a sentence and you're like, oh, how dare they say that? I can't believe they'd be angry like that. You're reading anger into the sentence. The person may have actually been crying when they wrote that sentence. Everything changes when you're in the presence of the person because you're communicating person to person. Again, I'm not asking for an hour Bible study together. You're just building up that interaction together face to face. 
the ways of Jesus Christ are vastly different than the ways of the world. But then again, the blessings are vastly different as well. A gut rot or a state of divine favor, a state of joyous expression for those who embody these characteristics, this idea of being a peacemaker. This morning, all of us have a choice before us. What will we initiate? What will we initiate? This morning, you are an initiator. I am an initiator. It's just, what am I initiating? Am I walking on the opposite side of the street? I'm initiating something from the other person. What am I initiating? They would continue to walk on the other side of the street. Or I'm initiating what? Ignoring in return. Or bad thoughts in return. Everything initiates something. What are you going to initiate? I am an initiator. Say it with me. I am an initiator. Jesus wants us to be initiators. He wants us to be people who initiate the peace process. Peace does not come through strength. Peace comes through humility. Peace comes through weakness. Not depending upon your own strength or your own feelings, but stepping out and saying, I'm going to interact with a person and I don't know what's going to happen. Today, Jesus would have us pursue blessing by pursuing peacemaking. Passive withdrawal is not the encouragement from Jesus Christ, but rather initiatives of peacemaking. Peacemaking is at the very heart of God. Today, we now turn our attention to coming to the communion table where we receive a piece of bread and dip it in juice. Body of Christ given for you, blood of Christ shed for you. This table is about one thing, peace. It gives us forgiveness, but what's the goal of forgiveness? Peace. You don't forgive someone and then hope that what? You remain at odds with each other. The goal of forgiveness is peace. God himself took the initiative with us. It says in Romans chapter 5 that while we were still enemies of God, Jesus Christ came and died for us while we were still powerless. God took the initiative because he's a peacemaker. And now God desires that we would take what happens here and make it happen out there. Because what happens here is supposed to change us. We're supposed to now be people of peace because we serve a God of peace. And so today, as you come forward to receive God's body and God's blood, I'd encourage you to ask God one question. Who do I need to make peace with? God, who do I need to make peace with? And then we go forth and be that peacemaker. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for giving us your desires, Lord. Thank you for making known your will for how we interact. Thank you for making known your will for how we respond. 
to difficult situations. This morning, God, I pray now for miraculous intervention that you, God, would give each person in this room the desire to be an initiator of peace. Lord, I pray now that you'd bring people to our minds that you'd have us initiate peace with. God, I pray now that as we come to your table that we could make peace with you. God, we acknowledge that we have done wrong. We acknowledge that we are imperfect. We acknowledge that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We acknowledge that we have had hate in our hearts at times. So God, we ask now that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us, and that you would renew us through the blood blood, and the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Bring us to a position of peace today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is at his last meeting with his followers. And as he gathers with his followers, he says to them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, after supper, Jesus takes the cup and says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Today, I invite you to come forward and to receive God's peace by receiving the forgiveness of your sins.